Welcome to Foothills Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Doug Peak. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit foothills.org. Welcome everyone. I'm Douglas Peak and I want to personally invite you whether you're here for the first time, you come back a few times on campus, if you're watching online or doing church at home, For the first time, we want you to be a part of our community of faith. We're going into Christmas season now, and you don't want to do that on your own or isolated. So if you want to know a little bit more about who we are, just scan this QR code. And if you have an iPhone, it'll just automatically uh, pull up a link. You click on it. It's anonymous. You don't have to sign up for anything. You can watch a few videos and get to know Uh, my wife and my family, and a little bit about Foothills. Now, on the last Sunday of every month, we also host a little Q&A about baptism. It's right after this service. It's about 10 minutes long, right back in the uh, chapel. You're on campus. You're invited to do that because the first Sunday of every month is Baptism Sunday. So if you have some questions or you'd like to get some info about it, you can go there and do that. If you're watching online, all you got to do is scan this QR code. That'll take you there to our teaching. It's a video curriculum on baptism that's designed to answer your questions. Now, we are ending our series called A Storybook Ending. And we asked the question, what kind of relationship story are you writing? Now, as a church, what we do when we do a series is we take a passage of scripture or sometimes two passages and we kind of camp out on them through the whole series. Now, if you listen to the whole series, this is what you learned. Number one is that we are created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. This has all kinds of implications. One, you have a soul. And number two, your soul is relationally oriented. That means that the desires of your heart, your desire to to love someone, to be bonded with other people, to have friends, to be valued and affirmed, comes from this need of your soul. We also discovered, though, that because we invited evil into the world in the Garden of Eden, our souls are tainted. So sometimes these thirsts or desires or drives can be perverted or can be influenced in a negative way. And this is why Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 specifically said we must work diligently on our relationships to preserve the bond of unity or peace. So verses one through six of chapter four, Paul taught extensively, admonitionally telling us, keep your relationships high priority. Then we, we kind of studied that in verses four, uh, chapter four, verses 22 through 24, that the way we keep our relationships uh, as a high priority, the way in which we work on them is by being made new in the attitude of our minds. We take off the old and we put on the new, which is being created in the likeness and righteousness of Christ. And then at the end of the chapter, verses 25 to 32, he gives seven practical steps. 
Number one was like, lay aside falsehood and speak truth. Number two, deal with your anger appropriately. Number three, be productive. Number four, uh, use words well, be kind and compassionate, forgiving, and so forth and so forth. So those were seven practical steps. And that's what we've been doing this whole series. You know, a few weeks ago, it was don't be that guy. And then it was don't be that girl. And then it was uh, don't be those parents. So we really thank Pastor Harv for a phenomenal job that he did. Man, he is so good at that. And uh, today what we're going to do, though, is the coup de gras, the cherry on top. And that is this. We're going to talk about the number one skill that you can work on and develop in your own life that improves all of your relationships across the board. Now, you know what that is? We threw it out on social media. Uh, social media. I'm not sure how you do that, but we did it. And uh, so people started interacting with it. They said, oh, the number one skill is trust, right? Or maybe the number one skill is communication. Maybe the number one skill is honesty or sharing the same goals, like-mindedness, love. Well, guess what? All those things are important, but that's not the number one skill. The number one skill to improve all of your relationships across the board, all research points to this, is conflict resolution skills. That's right. The more you learn how to resolve conflict in a positive way, then the stronger all your relationships are going to be. And this is directly related to Paul's number two practical step in verse 26 and 27 of chapter four of the book of Ephesians, where he wrote the following words, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger or while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. So in order to understand how conflict resolution is directly related to this, I have what I commonly call the relationship teeter-totter, right? Everybody needs one of these in their house, right? No, this is the relationship teeter-totter. What I'm gonna talk about is what I mentioned early on, and that is the number one toxin to all relationships is unresolved conflict. Doesn't matter if it's a business partner, doesn't matter if it's someone you're dating, if you've been married for 25 years, or it's with your children. Across the board, unresolved conflict is the toxin that undermines all relationships, okay? Now, on a teeter-totter, that is, is that all relationships always subconsciously go towards one thing, right? And that is balance. So you always subconsciously are motivated towards balance in all of your relationships. When your relationships become out of balance, they become unstable and instability in a relationship is chaos. And nobody wants the teeter-totter of chaos in their life. You are wired this way. You're driven this way. It's true across the board for everyone, regardless of what they believe, their socioeconomic background or so forth. So uh, let's just use one of the most important relationships that people have or focus on, the covenantal relationship of marriage as an illustration. Now this applies to all relationships, but I'm going to use that just for a case study. And that is this, is that when you fall in love and you are starting out in this covenantal relationship, what you find is that, let me get this just set just right. What you find is that your relationship in the center is very stable, right? And it doesn't matter how much this teeter-totter moves, the most stable place 
on a teeter-totter is when both people are right next to the fulcrum, you know, the pivot point, right? So it doesn't matter. You can have all kinds of stuff like that, right? But there's really stability no matter what, even through the ups and downs of life, okay? Now, what happens is, let's say uh, you have a guy and a gal, and they, get, uh, they meet each other in grad school. Uh, you know, they're both high IQ people. She, though, is uh, a hard, she's like a very organized A-type personality. She's very achievement-oriented, you know, and she f- follows it, you know, stuff. He was a real high IQ guy, but, you know... Uh, he grew his hair long, you know, and he was super laid back, you know, and he was just kind of, you know, almost laissez-faire about everything. And since they were so opposite, guess what? They fall in love, they get married, and they're just having the best time of their life. They go out in their respective careers, and uh, they do really, really well. And, and then they have this, about five years in, they have this massive disruptor in their relationship. This massive problem comes up called children. And... <laughs> So it really throws them for a loop, right? And what happens is, is that uh, these little babies then start walking and talking. You know, the old adage is that you try to teach your kids, you know, you know, say mama, say daddy, you know, walk, walk, walk. And as soon as they say daddy, and as soon as they start walking the rest of their lives, it's sit down and shut up. Um, so... But that, that happened. And what happened is she, of course, is like, our kids are going to be so successful. And he, she maps out their life plan and their educational steps, where they need to be. And she's got it all organized. She's got them all designed for a discipline plan and a training plan and a nutritional plan and all this stuff. And what is he? He's like, oh, kids are kids. You know, they're supposed to make messes. And oh, yeah, they mess things up. Oh, so what? So he's kind of laissez-faire, right? Well, what happens is the, one of the kids at some particular point, you know, runs out into the street and almost gets run over by a car. Okay. She's really upset with that because she's yelling, no, and little Johnny's just out there having a good time. She's like, he is your son. You know, he doesn't listen and stuff like that. And so she decides that the old, since he's not on the same page with me, trying to teach our boy the answer. To, and no, in that situation is life or death, right? So she's like, I'm going to preempt him since he's not helping me in that regard. And so you know what she does? She says, I'll be more organized and I'm going to work more on this. And so this is what she does. She decides to move here. Okay. Right. So what happens to the relationship when she does that? It gets out of balance. Now, what's odd about this is she'll feel weird about it. Okay. But she'll tell herself, look, it's for a good cause or the intense right. He feels really, really odd about it, right? And he doesn't like it at all. And all relationships, 100% of the time, always seek stability or what is known as equilibrium. So in order for this relationship to get equalized again, what does he do when it comes to the kids? He says, well, I'm going to take them out and feed them ice cream for breakfast. That's what I'm going to do, right? And I'm going to... So he becomes even more permissive and more fun dad. And she becomes what? More strict mom. Okay. Now, does their relationship now have equilibrium? Yes. Does their relationship work? Yes. What's the problem? They have a gap. Okay. So then the next time that they have a conflict and you look at, you look at 50 conflicts 
about the kids over five years, and then those conflicts, what? If you have an unresolved conflict in one area, what does it tend to do? It spills over into what? Other areas like money management or this or that. And over time, five years later, what do you have? You have this, right? And the problem with this is that it is super unstable, all right? And so this person has to move here, okay? Bottom line, this is how couples fall out of love. It's not by accident. It's not done by intent. It's done because they have never learned how to resolve their conflicts in a way that pulls them together. Instead, in order to get the relationship stabilized, they move further apart. And they look at each other and go, I don't, I don't even know you. And then little things become a huge problem. Why? Because where's the most unstable place on a teeter-totter? Yeah, it's way out here. And when you have these massive swings, massive conflicts over time, one person just says, I got to get off. I'm done. Okay. Now, this is the issue is it says in your anger, do not sin. Okay. At the very beginning of the chapter, what does he says? You must be diligent to preserve the bond of peace in Jesus Christ. You need to preserve the bond of intimacy that you have because of the taint Every single relationship left to its own trajectory ends up in failure. Let me say that again. Every relationship left up to its natural trajectory ends up in failure. You must diligently work to not allow this gap to occur. Because guess what? In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Where is the foothold in every relationship where Satan works? Right here. It's called the gap. This is how you can have two people who get along well, but there's distance between them. They don't feel in love. They don't feel intimate because they've resolved their conflicts in a way as individuals. They have not resolved their conflicts in a way that pulled them together. Now, some people are saying, well, I, I'm not worried. About, I, I, I got great conflict resolution skills, you know. I'm not afraid of conflict. Most people think that uh, conflict resolution skills means uh, you're not an avoider, right? Some people just avoid conflict at all costs. That's not conflict resolution at all. That's just conflict. Resolution is learning a new skill on how to make sure that every time we have a conflict, we're doing it, we're resolving it in a way that is a win-win that pulls us together instead of pushing it apart. This works with your business partners, okay? When you've got hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on the line. This works with your family relationships, your parents or your own children. This works with uh, your love relationships, particularly with spouses. And so that's really important to understand. So practically speaking for the rest of the message, I am now going to give you the seven steps of conflict resolution. So that you walk out of here at the end of this series and go, man, I now know what I can practically do and how to work through it. I actually made a worksheet, seven steps to conflict resolution. It's a PDF on our website. You can go there, download it, run off 10 copies and go home and practice. It'll be fun. Trust me. All right. Number one uh, thing that you need to do when you are going to 
start resolving conflict is you must learn how to define the problem, okay? What happens in an argument when you have a conflict with someone you're really, really close to, okay? What do you do? We have a, you have a conflict and you say, the problem is what? You! If you would stop, if you would do, if you would change, and then this person goes, oh yeah? Well, I wouldn't do that if you wouldn't do that, say that, nag that, demand that, right? So what happens is it becomes a you problem. Is that really the problem in conflict resolution? No, it's not a you problem. It's not a them problem. It's a what problem? It's an us problem. Now I can tell the story because it has, the statute of limitations has expired. It's over 15 years. There's a guy in our church, had a guy working for him and uh, he'd lived with this gal for a while. They uh, got pregnant. So they decided to get married. They got married and he was a subcontractor in the construction industry. And uh, he told his boss, he says, yeah, you know, my wife and I were fighting like crazy. I don't think we're going to make it. We're thinking about splitting up. And he goes, well, you go talk to the guy down at my church, my pastor, he, he can help you on this. So this guy, he'd never been to church, didn't know what pastor, met a pastor, came in and talked to me. And he goes, uh, uh, my boss said that you might be able to help me. And I said, well, what can I do for you? And he said, well, I have a really good friend who uh, raises championship hunting dogs and he gave me a pup for free. I go, wow, that's exciting. He goes, yeah, it's a $4,000 pup. I said, oh, that's amazing. And I go, so what's the problem? He goes, well, he said that uh, I sent the dog off to be uh, professionally trained. And I said, oh, well, how much did that cost? He said, $4,000. I figured since I'd saved it there, you know, I got it for free, I could pay for it to be professionally trained. I go, Oh, is your wife happy about that? And he goes, well, there's the rub. <laughs> he said, what I did is, um, is a, sub, uh, a supplier called and said, I needed an invoice number. So she went into my office at, at the house and she starts digging through all of my things. She finds this invoice for this dog and uh, she was so mad about it. And she started yelling at me and da, da, da. And I go, okay, I kind of understand that. Uh, so she didn't know about it. No, she didn't. And I said, so what's your question for me? He goes, I need to know how to get her to quit going through my stuff because if she wouldn't have known about it, we would have never had a fight about it. And so I just hope you know um, that your pastor, you know, this is how I'm wired. Uh, I'm very comfortable in my own skin. Some pastors are just super, super wired for empathy and compassion and love. Some are a little wired towards truth telling and prophetic stuff. I lean center to this side of that. And so I said to him, that's got to be the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Not my best moment, but that's what I said. But he just looked at me in shock and said, why? And I said, well, when you married her, right? He goes, yeah. I said, when you married her, did you say I do? Or did you say sort of under certain conditions that benefit me the most? And he says, well, no, I said, I do. And I said, you know what that's called? He goes, no. I said, well, let me tell you, it's called a covenant. That means no secrets, no lies, no, none of this stuff. And he goes, well, that'll never work because if she knew half of my business, all we do is fight. And I go, therein lies the problem. You got to define the problem honestly and accurately. You see, what's interesting is that if you say she's the problem, if she says he's the problem, really what you have is this is the problem. The gap is the problem. 
You're not on the same page about money. You're not on the same page about its purpose, your strategy, or anything at all. That's why she's angry. She feels betrayed. But the reason you're mad is because you've, you feel like it's none of her business. You guys have never talked about it, planned about it, strategized about it. So all you have is this huge gap. Satan's going to jump in the middle of that all day long. That's called a foothold. So you've got to define your problem. When you define the problem, what it does is you've got to take it off of the them and take it off of the you, right? And you've got to get it into the us. What is it about us that can't get on the same page about this issue? One of the best questions that you can ask your business partner is if he's upset or she's upset about something is this. They say, okay, we're obviously not on the same page about this. How can we get on the same page? You see what you're asking? You're asking, let's define the problem as an us problem instead of a me or you problem. Okay. Does that make sense? That's the first thing. The second thing you got to do, and this is even harder than the first one, is you got to learn how to own your own part. Many, many years ago, this is another statute of limitation story. There was a gal in her early 40s. She'd never been married. Super successful gal, super put together. You know, you're thinking, man, she, had, she would have no shortage of invitations to go out on dates. And so I did a series on men. And so she said, I need to have an appointment with you, Pastor. I want to come and talk to you. And I, so I said, sure. I want to talk about your, your message series. Sir, come on in. Uh, she said, look, I want to talk to you um, and I need you to answer a question for me. And she said, I said, what's that? She goes, why are all men jerks? If I could just understand why all men are jerks, then maybe I could figure out how to align my expect, expectations. And I said, well, why do you feel all men are jerks? And so she related her history with men, right? And I would have to say that even if half of what she said was right, she dated a lot of jerky guys, right? And so I said, well, the first step into finding out the answer to this question is you need to own your own part. What's your responsibility in all of this? Do you know what it is? And so, you know, you draw a pie, a big circle up there and say, on there, draw your sliver, your percent of what you think the problem that you're responsible it's four. And she says, well, I can't do that. I said, well, why not? She goes, because I'm not responsible for it because all men are jerks. She says, all men are jerks. There are no good men. And I said, I'm going to disagree with that. It's lots of good men. I said, let me ask you this question. Would you concede that there's something wrong with the calibration of your attraction radar that you're only attracted to jerky guys? You know, like maybe you have a Messiah complex where you want to go in and save this guy or fix him or do something to him. And she says, no. To which I replied is, then I can't help you. I can't help you. So you have to learn to own your own part. It doesn't matter how big your piece of the pie is. You got to figure out what it is. And if you have two people that are, let's say, married and you are in a relationship, you got to say is that in general, it's a safe rule to say your piece of the pie is 50%. Not all the time, but in a general rule, okay? Now, if there's real toxicity like abuse or drugs, then that's a whole nother ball game. We're not talking about that. We're just talking about how most people are in these covenantal relationships, how they do it. So you got to learn to own your own part. When you do it, what you're doing is you're saying, I want to deal with my anger. I want to deal with my frustration. I want to deal with the distance that I feel in our marriage relationships. 
Here's a side note. Husbands, are you angry? Are you resentful right now? Do you feel distant from your wife? Do you feel like it's hard to love her and really care about her? Are you just annoyed with her constantly? Then I would say part of the reason why is because you're unwilling to take responsibility for your part in the relationship. Boy, let that settle on you like a happy gift. But that's the truth. Men, you won't step up and say, I'm responsible for my part in making this relationship work. Wives, are you frustrated and angry? Are you disturbed over the distance that's between you? Do you feel like your husband won't listen to you? Well, maybe it's because you're really great at pointing out where he needs to improve, what his faults are and how he can make the relationship better, put forth more effort. But when it comes to a mistake or somewhere where you need accountability, you avoid it like the plague. And as a matter of fact, you make it so emotionally painful for him to bring up something that he just won't ever do it. Guess what? You'll have relationship stability because he won't ever bring up any of your flaws, right? But do you think you'll have intimacy? No, you won't. All you have is a giant gap. So learn to own your own part, okay? So these are the two hard steps, right? To conflict resolution. That's why most people don't even want to think about it, try it, or do it. But if you don't do the first two, guess what? You never get to the other ones because number three is where you get to start getting some objectivity. And it's called discuss unsuccessful approaches to resolution that you tried in the past. This develops objectivity. Instead of saying, well, you shoulda, woulda, coulda, and then she goes, you shoulda, woulda, coulda, say, well, what did we do that didn't work? Well, we tried this, you know? She could say, well, with the kids, I tried to get more organized and preempt you and do all this stuff, and before you would take them out, I'd try to, you know, out on a play date or out to the fair, I'd fill them with carrots and broccoli and all this kind of stuff, because I knew that I was hoping they'd be so full they wouldn't want cotton candy, but of course, when a kid has cotton candy, what do they do? No matter how full they are, it's going in the mouth. And then on the ride home, what happens to all of the vegetables and the cotton candy mixed together in that tiny little stomach? It's shared with the world. <laughs> right? See, so, so say, we tried that and you start laughing about that. You go, boy, that was, that was a huge mess, man. That took forever and a power washer to get it out of the car. Right? So, well, we tried this or we tried that. We tried this, we tried that. And what this does is it lowers the emotional intensity and it raises your objectivity. Because what you do is you're putting this issue out from it's your fault or my fault. It's a, it's a us thing. And here's, that leads you to step number four. And this is where things get really more positive than negative. And that is you start brainstorming new ways to resolve the conflict, to get on the same page. Can we brainstorm some new ideas? Well, if we've got money problems, then maybe what we need to do is like, number one, win the lottery. Um, number two, well, I could do a different job. Well, we could tighten up here. We could eliminate that. So you see what happens is when you're brainstorming with someone, you write everything down that's an idea, as many of them as you can. But this is where a problem, which is negative, becomes solution-oriented, which is positive. 
And so you start talking to your spouse about this and she's talking and you're talking and you're like, hey, let's get these ideas, write every single one down. There are no bad ideas. The reason why is because then you get to step number five and you know what that is? Both of you agree on one to try. That's it. Both of you agree on one to try. Both of you must agree. And what that does is that produces ownership because when you agree, you're taking responsibility for your part in changing the outcome. So you try one. Now, the reason why people have a gap and they never get closer is because of step number six. And that is they never come back. They try an approach, right? And they never come back and evaluate. You should always say when you try a new approach from your brainstorm list on resolving a conflict, you should always say in two weeks or four weeks or two months and four months, we're going to come back. We're going to have a meeting over this. And in that meeting, either one of us can say, this doesn't work for me. Let's go back to the brainstorm list and try a new one. All right. It's in that moment where you start doing this. You go from there to here because you've resolved conflict in a way that allows you to pull together. Do you know why gaps exist? Right? You have a couple, something happens bad fiscally. One of them says, hey, uh, we should have budgeted for that. It's a big problem. And the other one at that point moment says, yeah, we probably should have done a little bit better, you know? Then what happens is they, the one who says, ah, I've got the power now in the relationship. I'm going to control the money. And then what happens is you have entrenchment, right? Because then the next time they need to come together, right? And resolve something because there's a problem. What is the one person who didn't get a chance to opt out two months or four months later and say, this doesn't work for me? What does that person do the next time you're in a conflict? Is that person going to give in? No, they won't. You know why? Because they gave in once and it's never changed, even though it doesn't work for them at all. This is why you have to evaluate. This is why you have to come back and give each person an out. Because only when you do that, do you take the power out of the relationship and you let partnership rise to the surface. You do this, you go, well, let's try this, okay? Um, let, let's try getting on a stricter budget, okay? And I'll start packing my lunches, the guy says. So he's packing his lunches, you know, and he's going to work, he's doing that. Well, after about two months, you know, comes home, and she says, how's this working for you? And he goes, well, here's kind of the bummer is like every Friday, the guys, you know, they, everybody packs lunches, but on Friday, they always go out somewhere, you know, and I'm bringing my little bag, bag of lunch in there. You know, it just feels awkward and weird. And she has an option. She could say, well, we agreed on this and this is the agreement. And it's the only way we're ever going to survive this is if you do that. I don't care about your pride. So what happens next time when they have a conflict over something else? What's he going to do? I'm not giving in on that. No way. But if you resolve it in a way to say, okay, so you're saying it doesn't work for you. Yeah, it doesn't work for me. Well, let's go back to our brainstorm list and let's come up with a new one that works for me and for you together. So they come up with a different approach. They try a little bit different. She goes, well, I'll tell you what, you know, we've had this money set aside for uh, clothing, you know, or whatever, or diapers, and now we potty trained one. And, and so what if we moved that over here and this thing, and we did that, and then he goes, okay, let's just try that. 
okay? So on every Friday, I can go out and spend 10 bucks, you know, buy some fries and a Coke or whatever with the guys. Okay, so you see what happens is that's how the gap starts to close. That never happens if you don't evaluate. Don't skip the step, which leads us to the final one. And that is, is that you have to celebrate success or go try again. Man, when you start resolving conflict, what you're doing in a positive way, you're doing it in a way that is pulling you together. And the more you pull together, what happens to the gap between you? The smaller it gets. Well, that makes perfect sense to me, right? But here's the issue. The smaller the gap, the smaller the foothold. There's no foothold. There's no place for him to push you apart. When there's a foothold in your life, you know what happens? Satan uses it against you. You become paranoid against that person that you're in a relationship with. You start impugning negative intent instead of objective intent against them, right? You get paranoid about it. You know what else happens? is the wider that gap is whenever your kids start to grow up and they want to get what they want, you know what they're going to do? They go right for the gap, don't they? That's the first thing they do. Here's a little story about some of our kids when they were younger. Um, you know, their big thing was is they would go, Dad, can I? And before they even asked, I'd say, no. I just figured that that was more efficient. <laughs> you know, I just kind of do that. No. So after a while, they quit asking their mom. I mean, quit asking me. They go ask their mom, you know, and then their mom would negotiate with them and so forth like that. Well, they went through a period where they'd say, instead of asking dad, they go ask mom and they would say, mom, can I do such and such? And mom would go, no, I don't think it's a good idea. Blah, 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 blah. They go through the whole thing. And they'd come ask dad and they'd say, well, we talked to mom. What do you say? And then I'm thinking, oh, well, I'm not going to contradict my wife. And so I'd say, yes. And then my wife would say, I didn't say yes. And I'm like, okay, those little turkeys got me, right? They got me. So what I would do is uh, then I had to change. I had to say, they come to me and I, they'd say, dad, can we such and such? And I go, have you talked to your mom? Yes. What did your mom say? <laughs> well, mom said, no, I always agree with your mom. I always agree with your mom. So once you start realizing that other relationships in your covenantal relationship are going to march right into the gap, that's when you want to start saying, we can't afford to have one. If we want to raise healthy kids, we can't afford to have one. Once you start resolving conflict and you go through these seven steps in a way, your life will change. It's a wonderful place to be. If you've got good friends, your friendships will go deeper. If you're in a business partnership, your partnerships will be smoother. If you're married, intimacy goes up. You'll feel closer than you've ever felt before. You feel like you have a soulmate in your life because someone is always with you, working with you on the problems in life. The greatest partnerships flow out of situations where both people have strong conflict resolution skills because what they do is they resolve them in a way that pulls them together and not apart. Now, ladies, I know some of you are really annoyed. You're frustrated. You're angry. Maybe you're depressed with the man in your life. And so what 
your natural tendency will be is to criticize him, put him down, nag him. Can I be so bold as to say this is dealing with your anger inappropriately? Stop avoiding conflict resolution. Learn to do it. Men, some of you feel distant from your wives, disconnected. You're just tired of it all. You know, you're tired of this, tired of that. Well, that's because you're dealing with conflict inappropriately. If you guys are willing to dip your toe in the pool of conflict resolution, all of these things can change. Your life can overcome the natural tendency of all relationships that are tainted by sin. You can get rid of the toxin that undermines all relationships and you can write a new storybook ending. So there you have it. There you have it. The seven steps to resolving conflict. If you'd like to know more, just download them, use the worksheet, practice, because practice is how you get better at it. So now at the end of this series, like we do always, I give a blessing and this time it's going to be a prophetic blessing. So this is the things that I believe that the Lord wants to say to you in this space. Always remember, always remember, relationships are the most important things you will ever experience in your life. Your friendships, your family, your marriage, your kids, these are the number one factors that determine joy in life. Always remember, always remember, you have to be diligent to persevere in all of your relationships because the taint, the natural trajectory of our relationships is always towards failure. But those who want joy, those who want love, those who want the most out of life are committed to building. They're committed to growing. They're committed to investing in the one thing that gives life the most meaning, the most purpose, the most joy, and that is their covenantal relationships. Always remember, always remember, unresolved conflict is a toxin. It is a toxin that Jesus Christ came to destroy, and he did it on the cross. You see, the ultimate conflict, my friend, the ultimate conflict was between you and him. When we, as humanity, invited sin into this world and brought evil into our reality. That is the conflict that separates us from God, the God, the creator, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it was this unresolved conflict that Jesus Christ, out of his great love for us, for you and for me, came in order to destroy it. Always remember that Jesus paid all the fees, all the price, all the burden to resolve the conflict between him and you. And unless you receive it, unless you embrace it, unless you jump into the deep end of the pool, then you will not experience the peace, the healing, the fulfillment, or the joy of his grace in your life today. So remember and never forget, he has done all the work.
Now it is up to you. It is up to you to take the step onto his road, his way of life. And until you do that, you shall remain forever lost, always wanting and never satisfied, always thirsty and thirsting again, always disappointed, never at peace. My friends, the Lord is saying the peace which surpasses all understanding is waiting for you. Never forget, always remember. All you must do is be willing to write a new relationship story, one that begins and one that ends with Jesus. Thank you for listening to this Sermon of the Week. Video footage of this sermon and others can be found on foothills.org.